Oh, that's fun. Okay. Um, well, at this time, we want to dismiss the children to their various places. Yes, we'll, we'll just move right on. We'll just pretend like no one was laughing. When I was, no. Oh, that's what you said. Oh, see, there it is. See, that's what's so funny about it. God's got a sense of humor. Yeah. <laughs> Amen. All righty. Well, as they are going to their places, we can turn to First John, because we will be starting a new series here in First John. And this morning, I hope, or not I hope, I, I will be shining some light on our passage this morning, First John 1 through 4. And my hope is that we will bring this book into the light as we uh, go through this study. Perhaps even it'll be a guiding light by the time we have finished looking at our passage this morning. And in so doing so, we will intentionally put a spotlight over these few verses to have a better understanding. And by the grace of God, all of us here today will have a light bulb moment or two, maybe three, who knows, uh, as we come to a better understanding of the whole book of 1 John, but also the passages that we have here. So if you will, it seems that I have now a green light to go ahead and move on. So if you are able, will you please stand for the reading of God's word? 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and we have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us, that which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. May God bless the reading of his word. You may have a seat. Now, as you may have noticed, I threw some light idioms at us today. Light and us using these idioms is, is pretty common in our culture, right? I, I mentioned shining light on something or, or giving the green light the go-ahead or putting something in the spotlight. These are all idioms that we're very familiar with. These are not foreign ideas. And in various contexts, and cultures around the world, they use similar idioms. And John, well, we'll get into the authorship here in a moment, but this book does the same thing. And that's why I've titled the series Walking in the Light, because while there is rich and deep theological truths contained within this letter, this epistle, it's also not just thought exercises, 
but there's very practical, raw passages and uh, texts that explain to the Christian how then we ought to walk or how we ought to live in light of the theological truths that we understand here. And so as we go through this book, we will be understanding what it means to walk in the light, what that concept is all about. And so again, by the time we conclude this letter, my hope is that we'll have a solid foundation of what the Christian life ought to be about. But that's the future. Today, I want us to focus on three things. One is the who, who wrote it and to whom. Two is the what, what is the reason for this letter. And three is the truthfulness of this letter and a a brief apologetic of the reliability of the New Testament in particular. So, let's start at the who for this epistle. Who wrote this epistle? If you notice, we began this text by, or by, began this morning by reading our text. And unlike the works of Paul and various other uh, New Testament writings, there's no indication here. Now, again, our modern Bibles, right? If you were to, actually, it probably says right at the beginning of your Bible, it says 1 John. So, whoever put together our table of contents in those days back when we started to organize the text in the way that we have them today, attributed this to some guy named John. Now, luckily, John's not a very common name, and there's probably only one John that's ever existed in human history in the first century that we can go back in time and go, oh, yes, this must be the only John, because here he was. And obviously, you understand my sarcasm, because John is a very common name. Even in Scripture, if we were to look at the Johns, we could find a handful of Johns that we could pluck from and look at and go, okay, which John is this? Because there's no indication here, no introduction, no I'm John so-and-so or this John or various things. We don't have that. There is no clear-cut introduction. Now, this might bother some of us. This might perturb some of us. Um, However, the church tradition gives credit to the Apostle John, or John the Apostle. And frankly, this also fits with his other attributed works. The Gospel of John, excuse me, in the Gospel of John, John himself never identifies himself. If you'll notice when he lists off the other disciples, they get named. But then there's this mysterious one who's often just called the one whom Jesus loved. And so it seems that perhaps the Apostle John is doing a similar thing here, not identifying himself here much like he did in his own gospel. But if we look at also similar language and similar concepts that he brings up, notice uh, in particular he mentions the uh, eternal life, that phrase, right? And then we know the most famous passage from that most everybody can recite, John 3.16, you know, mentions eternal life. And so there seems to be some correlation there. There's also the um, notion at the very beginning of how this book starts as opposed to how the gospel of John starts about from the beginning and looked upon and, and handled. But also there's the word logos or the word word in English that seems, again, parallel similar language and similar writing styles and similar vocabulary that the author of the Gospel of John 
and now this letter seems to correlate and compare to. So while again, we don't see an introduction, we can see that again, some of this vocabulary is pretty consistent with the apostle. But also too, we have to look and look at this language that he uses and notice what he says. He says, which we have heard. Okay, so the author clearly has heard what he's about to say. And he's also seen with his own eyes. And he's also looked upon and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. And that was made manifest. And again, they are now testified, or he says he testifies and proclaims it. So this is someone who clearly handled or interacted with Christ. And who fits that description but the Apostle John. Again, we know he walked with him in his ministry. He went with him. He was there when the blind received their sight again. He was there when the lame walked. He was there when a few loaves and a few fish fed thousands. Now, is that someone who has seen, someone who has heard, someone who has touched? Absolutely. This is starting to become very clear. This most likely and most definitely is the apostle that is writing this words. Because again, who would have had that firsthand knowledge? Now again, also then think about what we know about John. John was also not just there for all of those things, but John also was there at the transfiguration. He was one of the few apostles who was brought along to go on and see this great event where Christ showed his glory in full prior to his death and resurrection. So again, John had insight. John had clearly been one who had seen, heard, and uh, touched these situations. And even so, we, we read in the Gospels how he leaned at the Last Supper with Jesus. And so he even was there, again, very personal, very intimate, and these words seem to indicate that. And so because of, again, this vocabulary, because of these ideas, clearly, to me, uh, the ancient tradition is correct. And this is the Apostle John who's writing these words that we will continue to study as we go through this book. So, obviously, just like there's no mention of who wrote it, there's no mention to whom. Right, again, if we compare this to works of Paul. Paul very clearly often addresses most of his letters. I'm the Apostle Paul, and I'm writing to the church or to the saints or to the people in fill in the blank of whatever city he's writing to. Ephesus, right, or, you know, Rome, whatever the case may be. There's none of that here. So we have to now ask the question, who is he writing to? But since we have the who wrote it, we can now make some assumptions based upon that because other works of John and the history of the church seem to suggest that he's writing to the churches in the Asian, excuse me, Asia Minor region. And so he's writing to the Christians around that region, what we would call modern-day Turkey, essentially, that, that part of the Roman Empire. And again, we can, a deeper dive, you could look into this and, and find out probably why, but I think the leading case would be um, Book of Revelation seems to focus on those churches and 
Revelation is also a work of John, and so it seems to be that this seems to be his target audience, but also because of the other material as we go in, dealing with some of the what's, which we'll talk about, seems to fit that those were some issues going on as well that needed to be addressed. And so our major sort of starting off point is we have John, the apostle, is our author, and he's writing to some of the churches in the Asia Minor uh, region initially, but obviously we know that this book spread. Which, because, right, we're nowhere near Turkey today, and we haven't, so never mind. So anyways, so obviously we know it's spread. Okay, so now what about the what's? Uh, what is the reason for this letter? Why did John write this? has to become a major question. Now, Again, we'll get into these topics, but I just want to throw them out there so we can sort of have them um, as we go on. Um, but the, one of the major reasons is to address heresy. Now, sadly, the church has always had heretics, has always had people who twisted the Word of God. There are people who just, well, probably a multitude of, of reasons here. Some people may be deliberately trying to just misguide people. Some people actually who honestly believe this and just are misunderstanding the text. Uh, whatever the case may be, there have always been false teaching. Um, and John is a, addressing some of these. In fact, one of the major themes or one of the key words he uses several times throughout his text is the word antichrist. Now, he's not mentioning or talking about some future single figure that will come to prominence at some point in the future. When John uses it in this context, he's not talking about that. He's talking about someone who is against Christ, someone who is challenging the truth of who Christ is or the truth about what Christ taught. And so when he uses the word antichrist, again, not some future leader, politician, whatever, case that our common Christian culture has picked up about that term, but rather he's talking about someone who's contrary to who Jesus is. And so this book will address that. And when we get to those passages, we will dive deeper into those various heresies, various um, false teachings, um, and just get into that. But what I would draw us and just make us think for a moment to give some practical application here before we move on, is just the first and foremost, we as Christians need to be diligent studiers of this word. Because, well, I'm sure most of you have one of these lovely little rectangulars in your pocket as well, where you could find anything. And it's, it's one of the great advantages of our day where literally I can find sermons from anyone and read them or listen to them across the world, which is awesome. But at the same time, I can listen and find anything that anybody has preached or said about the Bible. And, and obviously, there's plenty of people who teach false things. And so, brothers and sisters, I think we need to be aware of this warning that we need to know this Word of God so that when we hear what people say, you can put it to the test. Um, I, would, I would even challenge you to whatever you hear from this pulpit, um, especially, I mean, I won't throw shade at our other pastors here, but if I'm up here talking, you better be checking just to make sure I'm not going crazy. Um, and I would gra gladly take any of your challenges if you think I'm, I'm out of bounds. So, and I would imagine 
Steve and Don would take that too. But um, again, just to be diligent and to actually know the Word of God, to not fall for these false teachings. Okay. So another major what of this book, what is the purpose behind this book, is to have assurance of faith. Now, I don't know where you stand, but I'm sure many times you've probably stopped and gone, am I saved? Do I know Jesus? Does Jesus know me? And this letter helps us to understand what a believer is like, what they do, what they may think, what they are about. It is a solid measuring rod of the authentic person of faith. This book will help us understand that. And as we go through this series, we will see that. Again, to be, well, it's gone, but the people who walk in light, walk in the light, excuse me. So for those wrestling with the question, am I truly saved? You will find answers while reading this epistle. You will come to a better understanding. And if you do struggle with that, if you are in this spot where you're going, am I really genuinely saved? This, I, honestly, just start reading ahead tonight. As soon as you, or this afternoon, as soon as you get home, just go start reading. And uh, John and his first epistle here will definitely be something that will help. But, but again, by the time we wrap up this series, we also have a conviction of our faith. For some, it's going to be very foundational. Again, because maybe you're newer to the faith, maybe you're still learning and growing. Uh, others, this might be a rekindling, again, something that you've lost or something you've gotten lazy in and, and needing that refervorment, that re-energizing uh, of wanting to be everything that we ought to be in Christ. And for some, it may even be a rebuke where we've been in error and we need to be corrected out of our misguided steps. And so, again, one of the reasons as I was praying about what book we should go through as I was given this opportunity to teach you through a book was this letter that John has written to us gives us sort of this great encompassing idea that all of us can pick out something from. It's not going to go over the heads of those who are, are babes in their faith. It's not going to, you know, be too shallow for those who have been walking with the Lord for many years. This is, again, going to be a wonderful study. At least my hope is that this will be a wonderful study as we understand what it means to walk in the faith and have assurance in our faith. So, our final what actually comes right from the text. And this is in verse 4. So let's re, uh, read this in verse 4 of First uh, John. And that we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Now, let me get a little theologically nerdy here for one second. This is a uh, textual variant. And for those of you unfamiliar with that, that means that in the ancient manuscript record, there are, there's, a, there's a slight difference depending on what manuscript you look at. And it's a small variant, but it's a variant nonetheless. There, it's right there. And the ESV translated it so that our joy may be complete. But other um, English translations, because of the manuscript record, translate it so that your joy 
may be complete. Now, again, you might be saying, well, that's a very small this, uh, difference, and I would agree with you. It's very minute. However, obviously, the way you read that would be very different, subtly, but, but different. So assuming that the ESV is right, the apostle wrote this so that our joy may be complete. And so what would be the R? He's be referring to the apostles or the church leaderships uh, around these various churches that he was writing to, the pastors, the deacons, the other leaders there, that their joy would be filled because you now are walking and obedient as fellow church members, right? That would be sort of the assumption that as a pastor, as someone who, who has poured over the text or poured over day and night with, with people praying and, and ministering and serving in these various capacities, it then brings joy when you see that person come and walk in faith or grow in faith. Or, again, to go back to my Edens, have that light bulb moment where something sparks back into coming to mind. Um, in fact, as a junior high and high school teacher, that's one of my favorite things is getting to see is when you are studying a, a various topic or trying to under, unpack a, a, an idea to a, a student and then, like, they're arguing with you or they're trying to be like, well, what about this? And, and they're trying to, they're just trying to understand and they keep asking questions and you're sort of like, man, are they ever going to get it? And then finally, one day they go, oh, wait, it's like this. And you go, yes, that's exactly what I've been trying to get you to see or to see. And it's just this awesome moment. And again, that is something that obviously would bring great joy to any pastor or any other leader of the church. We, we love it when we see people who are struggling grow and have that aha moment. It's a beautiful thing. So again, that clearly makes sense uh, with what John could be writing. But let's look at the other possible reading of this variant, that it would say your joy may be complete. So the reader's joy would be complete. Now, I think this also makes perfect sense because if he wrote so that your joy may be complete, then that would mean that by understanding these teachings, what he writes, you will have complete joy in the work of Christ. Now, let me just get you to ponder something here for a moment. Is your joy complete in Christ? Of course. Think about, think about it. What do we have to worry about if we have Christ? Nothing. What do, we, what do we have in Christ? Well, we have forgiveness of our sins. We have the grace and mercy of God given to us. We have access to the Father. We've mentioned it in several of the songs and to other times up here. That we can come before the Father with boldness. Because of Christ. Now, I'm sorry, but that gives me tremendous joy to just stop and think and go, I get to go to God the Father because Christ died in my place. That in Christ, we are also adopted by God. We have become a member of the household of God. Brothers and sisters, Jesus Christ is the God-man. We know this. He lived that perfect life. He never sinned. He walked in perfect obedience to the Father and then took our place on the cross. He went where we should have gone. He died 
in our place, taking the weight and the punishment of sin again for us. And it should have been us hanging there, but instead it was him hanging on the cross, dying, being buried, and raising on the third day. And that is the source of joy. I mean, just, well, yes, I can. Here we go. I had a squirrel moment. I apologize. Um, I just got back from a trip. We were in the East Coast visiting family. And there was flight delays and a lot of stress um, trying to get back. And there was a question of would I get back in time even for today. And we rearranged some things. But then after we rearranged some things, I wasn't sure if it was going to work out uh, because of rain. And it was all sorts of crazy conditions. And it would have been very easy just get caught up in that moment and been like, well, there's no hope. There's no whatever, and just getting angry and mad and frustrated. And I'll admit, I maybe did get a little stressed out at times. What ultimately always brought me just back to just going, oh, I'm being so stupid, is Christ has done so much more for me that if I don't make it back, Pastor Steve or Don or can fill, fill in, it'll take care of it. God in his goodness will have it all taken care of. I don't need to worry about that because I am with God. I'm saved. I'm in his family. And that transcends all other frustrations and all other stressors. So that is joy that can come any situation that we might find ourselves. And again, I said something very trivial about just traveling. I mean, think about other hardships that people are going in throughout all the world. And so again, to have this fellowship that John mentions here as well, fellowship with the church, this intimacy, this bond, this actual knowing and caring and, and being with one another extended here, but also the fellowship we have with God because of this now, that is joy. And so again, either way you want to see this textual variant, they both work, they both fit, and both Again, just marvel at the goodness of God and, and what he's doing in our lives. So, we've covered the who, we've covered the what. So now I want to cover the truth and, and transition a little bit. This is a slightly... Well, I want to get into something different here. So I want to get into some apologetics a little bit. As I've already mentioned, uh, some of the key words, seen, heard, and handled, is how John opens this letter. But I would uh, challenge you to, to note how he didn't open it. He didn't say in once upon a time. He didn't even say in a galaxy or excuse me, a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. And for those of you who are more cultured, he didn't even say when tigers smoked pipes. That's a Korean opening to fairy tales, for those of you who are unfamiliar. Um, but nevertheless, he didn't use any of those verbiages. He used a very clear statement 
that we have seen and we have heard and we have handled. This is no myth, what we're about to unpack. John is not writing fairy tale. He's not writing myth. He's not trying to adopt some sort of new thing like most of the pagan religions around him at the time, right? When did Zeus do all those Zeusian things that Zeus did? We don't know. It's just some time there, right? When did Hercules do all of his great feats? We don't know. There's no historical context. There's no time. There's no place. We can't pinpoint any of those events because we don't know. And just like other religious texts in our more current day, the Book of Mormon is claimed to have been you know, retrieved and translated by Joseph Smith uh, and when he was done with these golden tablets that some angel supposedly led him to, they just were then ascended back into the heavens by another angel. How convenient. And again, documenting events that we can't pinpoint. Documenting events or, or no ties to anything that we can archaeologically or historically verify any of. And again, we could do this with various other religious texts throughout the histories, but this is what makes the Christian Bible so unique. We can pinpoint. We know under whose reign Jesus was born. We know under whose reign Jesus was crucified. And we can go and say, okay, was there a Pontius Pilate? Oh, there was. Okay, interesting. And we can go and we can track and we can see that historic data matches up. This is no fairy tale. No myth. So again, it's not some guru or some other just teacher just trying to sit and trying to think and ponder these deep, mystical things, but it's him having lived a historic and a real-life event that changed this. So when mentioning John as the author, this then helps us understand because he lived these real events. And so the following letter is no theoretical work. It's something lived. It's something experienced. Because again, we already mentioned that he has gone and he was witness to the miracles. He was witness to the healings. He was witness to the teaching. He was witness to the death and resurrection. He was there. And it's a growing number and today, but again, you won't find many historians who will even argue that Jesus was a human that existed, right? Again, like I said, there's, there are more of them because they don't really want to do their homework, apparently. But again, the historical record is very clear that there was at least a guy by the name of Jesus who lived in the region that the New Testament talks about and who was a, a relatively famous rabbi that caused controversy, most historians will give you that, whether or not they believe that he's the son of God and that, he was, that he's eternally God, right? They, they won't give you that one, but they will at least give you, okay, there was this guy who lived and did some stuff and stirred the pot, so to speak, in his time. Okay, that seems to be pretty on par with what we read in Scripture. Again, Scripture gives us more than that, but nevertheless, it's there. It's something that we can see. It's something we can handle. It's something we can interact with. It's an amazing reality when we stop and think about this. And honestly, I, I, when I read this, I can't 
help but just think about what that must have actually been like, that this man is writing these words, again, not based on just some sort of own best thinking or, or just some sort of, you know, you know, mystic thing, but rather because he was there with Christ. He walked with him and he lived with him. And then he was also witness to the empty tomb and also witness then to the risen Christ. And John's not the only apostle who tags on this idea. Peter has a similar notion as well. So if you want to jump over to Second <clears throat> Peter, chapter 1, Peter says something very similar to what John has been saying here. Second Peter, chapter 1, verse 16 is where I will be picking it up. So Second Peter... Chapter one, verse sixteen. For we did not follow, or excuse me, for we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses to his majesty. For when we, for when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain, and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing first, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So Peter basically reiterates in a slightly different way, but very similar to what John just said, that he was eyewitness, he was there. He heard, he saw, he interacted with or handled, touched. He was there. Again, and not some special revelation that only he got, that he claimed, right? And that's what most of our false teachers all say. Well, I got a special word from the Lord. Was anybody else around to hear it? Nope. That, come on. Like, who, who believes that? Oh, I heard from the Lord. Well, anybody else around? No. Well, how do I know it's not just you making something up? Well, you don't. Just trust me. Okay. Good luck with that. If you do, God bless you. But I'm, I'm very skeptical of people who tell me something like that. But John, Peter were there. The other apostles were there. Other eyewitnesses were there. They saw, they heard, they interacted. And so our New Testament, again, is not mythos. It's not legend. It's not something that we can't interact with. It's not something that someone didn't experience themselves or multiple eyewitnesses experience themselves. That can be tested, can be challenged. Have you ever noticed that in our New Testament, when they name someone, they often will say where they're from. That's, again, so that someone doing their homework could actually go and do it. I mean, one of the, my favorite ones is, is the man who carried the cross of, of Jesus, uh, Simon of Cyrene. 
theoretically, when that book, when, those, when that gospel had been written, someone could have been like, did he really? And had they gone and wanted to, they could have gone to Cyrene and found him and then confirmed him and been like, hey, listen, there's a story going around about you carrying the cross of this man named Jesus. Can you tell me about that? And yeah, he could have. Or again, the empty tomb would have been very easy for the um, Roman government or the, the Jewish Sanhedrin to go, hey, you guys are claiming that Jesus rose from the dead. Exhibit A, the body in the tomb. Would have been game over. It could have ended the whole thing, but instead, because we understand that these are historical events, they're not there. So this is not some work of fiction, it is truth. And as John records in his gospel, in John chapter 14, verse 6, Jesus said this, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So this gives us a very powerful understanding of the word truth. Truth is not just something to be discovered. God is truth. Truth comes from God. Truth is one of the attributes of God. Something that makes up his character. And so this is why we ought to care about truth. Again, we, when we look at this text, these texts and these other ones that we will be getting into, do we care about its authenticity, its truthfulness? We ought to. Again, not to just avoid the false teachings that we've already talked about, but again, because the truth is very critical to who God is. Because again, it's one of his attributes. It's one of the things that he has shown us about who he is. He is a God of truth, a God who cares about the truth, a God who is truth. And so it's his very nature to be truthful and to be the truth. And so he is the definition of truth. And so once again, when we then look at biblical texts, it's not some subjective thing that I get to sort of place my own understanding or my own uh, interpretation on or my own want to whatever the case may be. Subjective truth is nonsense to the Christian worldview. If we forget this, then it's no longer God that we are worshiping, but ourselves and our own desired reality. Because when we make up truth, it's no longer us who makes, excuse me, it's no longer God we worship, but ourselves, because it is us who is now determining what is truth. And if we understand that God is truth, then now we have found ourselves in quite the con contradiction. Okay, so we have covered who wrote this book. We've covered to whom he wrote this book. We address some of the major key points that we'll be looking at as we continue to understand what it means to walk in the light. And we had a brief apologetic on what is truth and why we can call the New Testament truth. So I'm excited to get deeper into this, to, get, to start to unpack the various passages, um, to understand what it means to walk in the light, to give us this core doctrinal teachings and Again, maybe that refervoring of, of obedience or just refervorment to, to love and pursue God that maybe has grown cold 
or again, just for us that are maybe newer in the faith to really dive in, to really understand what is it the foundation that we need to be standing on. Nevertheless, by the time we complete this and as we go through, we are going to get those things. And so this should be a great time of just God showing us what it means to walk in the light. So let's pray. And... Uh, See what God does. Father, I once again thank you for your son, first and foremost, that he came and lived this life, that we might know what salvation is, that we might know what it is to be saved and redeemed by you. So God, I just pray that as we continue to study this epistle, as we continue to study this letter of John, that you, Lord, will speak to us and challenge us and rebuke us or comfort us where we maybe need those various things. Because, Lord, we know that your word is truth, and we know, Lord, that you want to sanctify us in that truth. And so, Lord, may you have your way in us and just guiding us as we continue this study. So, Lord, be with us this day. And Lord, may you just be praised and honored in all that we do. And so, Lord, we thank you, we love you, and we pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.